All right, let us begin our sermon time this morning with prayer. Uh, we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son into our world at Christmas. We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit to us as we study your word. Send your Spirit to us to build our faith and to build our understanding of how much you love us and how much you have done for us. Um, use our sermon study time to help us grow and to prepare us to live for you in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> if you were to ask any pastor, I think you could go to any pastor in the world, and if you were to ask him, what was the Bible text that your first sermon ever was based on? My guess is that most pastors would probably still remember. No matter how long they've been pastoring, they'd probably remember the text for their very first sermon. I still remember the text for my very first sermon. It was Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. Those are the verses where the sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet. And uh, Luke writes and, and talks about that. In fact, I even remember the theme for my first ever sermon that I wrote. It, it even rhymed. Debt-free is set-free. Isn't that nice? And to be honest, I probably remember almost the whole sermon. Because what I did was after I wrote it as a first-year student at seminary, that summer, I went and I preached that sermon over and over and over at every little small country church I could find throughout southeastern Minnesota. I preached it at my home church. Finally, by the time that summer was over, I knew the sermon pretty well, but I was also pretty sick of it. I preached it a few too many times. Well, I don't think I'll ever forget that sermon. I don't think I'll ever forget that text. Now, I was not there for the day of Jesus' first sermon. But I can guarantee you that the first sermon that Jesus ever preached was much better than mine. Um, must have been a good sermon. Not a single part of Jesus' first sermon was boring or confusing or poorly outlined. And Jesus' first sermon was not delivered by, like, a nervous young man who had to hold on to the pulpit so his hands would stop shaking. No, Jesus' first sermon was a clear, confident message from the Son of God himself. But what was the text, you ask, that Jesus' first sermon was written on? Well, it actually is our reading for today. Isaiah 61, those first verses that we heard, those were the verses for Jesus' first sermon ever. We don't have the text of that whole sermon written down in the Bible, but we do have the start of it. And so let's listen to the Gospel writer Luke tell us about the day that Jesus preached his first ever sermon. Luke says this, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, so it's his hometown, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a pretty attention-grabbing sermon introduction, isn't it? Jesus is saying this prophecy was written 700 years ago by a guy named Isaiah, but this ancient prophecy, Jesus says, is talking about me. I am the one who's going to rescue you from poverty, from brokenness, from mourning, from despair. Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to take away all your problems. That's a pretty bold claim, especially for a local boy from Nazareth. And sure enough, as Luke points out later in the chapter, the people in Nazareth, the Nazarenes, were not exactly thrilled by some of the claims that Jesus was making in this sermon. In fact, after church, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Fortunately, they did not succeed. Uh, but Jesus' preaching tended to stir up similar reactions like this from similar people throughout his ministry, right up to the point where it was his own Jewish countrymen who were the ones that were handing him over to get crucified. So here is the first question today, is like, what was the deal? What was people's problem with Jesus? They were waiting for a Savior. They've been waiting for a Savior for thousands of years. Prophets like Isaiah had been writing all about this Savior who's going to come. So why were they not celebrating the fact that he was finally here? Why were the people not more excited about Jesus? The answer is because Jesus did not seem to be doing enough to fix this broken world. I'll say that one more time. The reason that people were not excited about Jesus, not as excited as they should be, is because they did not think Jesus was doing enough to fix this broken world. Yes, Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor, but the poor still didn't have enough money. Yes, Jesus was healing the sick, but eventually they would get sick with something else. Yes, Jesus did a miracle, and he fed the 5,000. But guess what? The next day, they still needed more food for their next meal. Yes, Jesus was building God's kingdom. But politically, the Roman Empire was still in charge. So the Jewish people started to ask, if this guy is really the promised Savior, what is he saving us from? And maybe you have felt that same way. Maybe you have kind of asked that same question. I wonder if it's happened to you that you have faith in God, you have your trust in your Savior, and yet your faith doesn't seem to be protecting you from health problems. Your faith doesn't seem to be protecting you from your money problems or your relationship problems. You have faith in God, and yet your life has so many problems that you wonder, what is Jesus even saving you from at all? Or, maybe it's not your problems that trouble you, but maybe it's other people's problems. You see suffering that is happening around the world. You see terribly unfair, unjust things that are happening. You see people who are mourning and, and being hurt. And as you look around the world and see that, you have a hard time reconciling that with a God who has said he's going to provide good news for the poor. And he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. And he's going to free the prisoners. And he's going to release the captives. And you look, look at what's happening around the world. And it doesn't seem like he's doing a lot of it. 
Maybe it's not people around the world. Maybe it's even people in your own life. Maybe it's even Christians. How about this? Maybe it's even Christians that you know in your own life. God has promised he's going to watch over his children and take care of them and deliver them from danger. And yet, do you ever see people in your life, Christians in your life, that have all kinds of danger and problems? They maybe are suffering more than anyone else that you know. And so sometimes we all look at Jesus and we say, all right, if this guy is really the promised Savior, what is he saving us from? That's a good question. But to answer that question, we just need to dig a little bit deeper. All of the physical problems that we have in this world, they all have one root. They all have one cause. It's a spiritual problem. It is the problem of sin. And so if Jesus is really going to save us from everything, he has to dig in deep and address the problem at its source. So what we'll do in the remainder of our sermon here is we'll look at these key verses again from Isaiah 61. But this time, as we look at a few of these phrases, we're just going to think of each one, think of it from a spiritual perspective. We'll start with this one, that Isaiah said the Savior is coming to proclaim good news to the poor. What does that mean on a spiritual level? What does it mean to be spiritually poor? Well, at the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy, his country of Israel was very spiritually poor. Maybe you remember the situation that they were in. That, like for generations, they had been worshiping idols and false gods. And God sent them prophets to tell him over and over again, these false gods can't save you. I'm the only God you need. But they didn't listen. They would not listen to God. They would not listen to his word. And so finally God took the drastic step of allowing an enemy nation to come in and take them over and carry them off into exile. And so this is the situation that the people were in when they read these words of Isaiah. They had been humbled by their own sins. They, they were now terrified. They had blown it. They lost the promised land. They were carried away somewhere else. Maybe they were never coming back again. They were thinking, maybe God isn't ever going to want us back again. It's a time of spiritual poverty. Maybe there's been times in our lives where we have felt spiritually poor as well. Times in our life where we feel guilty, terrified, crushed by the weight of our own sin. Crushed by the fear of how does God really feel about us. But it is for those times that God sent the Savior to proclaim good news to the poor. And so the spiritual good news for the spiritually poor is simply this. God sent his son to the cross to give us everything that was his. So you think of all the spiritual wealth of heaven. You think of the status of being God's own child. You think of getting to be eternal and live and never die and all of those spiritual riches. Jesus took those to the cross and on the cross he gave all those spiritual riches to you. And in exchange, he took on himself your and my spiritual poverty. He took on himself our brokenness. He took on himself our sins and the messes that we have made and the punishments that we deserve. He took those on himself and he paid for them and washed them away forever. So faith in Jesus is like a spiritual 
rags to riches story. We go from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. What does Paul say in the book of Galatians? He says, once you're God's enemies, but now we are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are a prince, a princess in heaven, a child of God himself. That's spiritual riches, and that's the good news Jesus came to bring. All right, Isaiah goes on. He says the Savior's coming, and he's going to provide freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We ask again, what does this mean on a spiritual level? What might be some spiritual things that are imprisoning people and oppressing people? What about guilt? What about guilt for one specific thing that happened a long time ago? And yet you still struggle with that guilt again and again and again. What about the imprisonment of a temptation? A temptation that keeps coming back, to keep falling into that same sin, and you've kept falling into it again and again and again. On the other side of things, what about an obsession with trying to be perfect? What about the anxiety that comes from knowing that we're not? These are all the different kind of things that can imprison us. They can work in our minds and our hearts until we feel oppressed, controlled. But Jesus sets us free. Jesus lets us out from those prisons of guilt and temptation and obsession and anxiety about our own life. And how does Jesus do that? Well, he gives us his life. God's gift to you in Jesus is a perfect life. A life with zero sins. A life of absolute excellence in every area. And that life, through faith in Jesus, is yours. And God sets you free from the prison of all of these different things that are trying to imprison you and lock you up in your life. Isaiah continues, the Savior is going to come to provide recovery of sight for the blind. Yes, Jesus healed a lot of physically blind people, but what does this mean on a spiritual level? Maybe think of the blindness of trying to live life without God. The blindness of focusing only on the here and now and, and not thinking about eternity. The blindness of only being able to look at ourself and our own needs and being too selfish to think about others. And yet, with his self-sacrificing death on the cross where Jesus poured it out and laid it down for us, he opens our eyes to be able to see God's incredible love for us, and to be able to see the chances we might have to show love for others. Isaiah continues with just one more. The Savior is coming to comfort those who mourn. What does this mean on a spiritual level? Well, there's a lot of things we might be mourning. We mourn that our world is so broken and disappointing. We mourn that we are so broken and disappointing. We mourn the loss of our health and strength. We mourn the loss of opportunities and chances that we're not going to have again. And we do mourn the loss, more every year, of people who have passed away. But in the midst of our mourning, our Savior provides comfort. Not by making our earthly life perfect and easy, but by promising to us and to our loved ones a resurrection to an eternal life where there will be no more suffering 
or mourning or crying or pain or death ever again. Because that whole old order of things is going to have passed away. So what was Jesus actually saving us from? If he's supposed to be the Savior, what was he actually here to save us from? Jesus came to save us from everything. He came to conquer all of our problems. He just had to start with the spiritual ones first. But eventually, the day is coming when all of our physical problems are going to be conquered as well. I want you to imagine something. Imagine a doctor who specializes in helping people with their pain. So this is this, is this doctor's specialty. This is what he does. If you have pain, you go to this doctor and he prescribes to you medicine. Drugs upon drugs upon drugs. And so his patients keep feeling pain. They come back to him and they need more medicine. And he gives them more medicine. And it just keeps on going. And it's a perfect system for this doctor. Because medicine costs money. And he's making a lot of money. Taking away pain. And then more pain. And then more pain. But he's really not being a very good doctor, is he? All he's doing is he's treating the symptoms of the pain, but he is not addressing whatever underlying disease his patients actually have. And this is what it would have been like if Jesus had came to earth. You think about this. If Jesus had came to earth and he healed all the sick people and he fed all the hungry people and he gave big hugs to all the mourning people, maybe he even raised their loved ones from the dead, And then he went back to heaven. I mean, people would have loved it. People would have wildly celebrated Jesus for this. But he wouldn't have been a very good doctor. He would have only been treating the symptoms, not the disease. And this would be the same thing if Jesus maybe answered all of the different prayers that we pray and did all the different things that we want to have in our life and if he responded to our life the way that we would draw it up. If Jesus took away all our sickness all our relationship troubles, all of our money troubles, every earthly issue that bothers us, we would love it. We would be happy for a while. But as long as this world remains broken by sin, any sick person who gets healed is eventually going to get sick again. Every hungry person who gets fed is eventually going to be hungry again. Even if a dead person were raised from the dead in this sin-broken world, they would eventually die again. In the long run, we need a doctor who's not just going to treat the symptoms. We need a doctor who will cure the disease. And that's what Jesus did. He put on hold for now his plan to remove your sickness and your sadness and your relationship troubles and your money troubles. He put that on hold to go to the cross and take away our sin troubles. And now that those troubles are gone, now that stage one of our salvation is accomplished, Jesus is getting ready for stage two. And that is when he comes back at the last day, and he builds us a new heaven and a new earth, and he gives us a life where there will be no more troubles ever again. So, we get it. Our spiritual salvation has been accomplished. Our physical salvation is coming But here is the final question. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Do you recognize you're living in a very awkward stage of history, this in-between time where your disease has been cured, but you still are being bothered by the symptoms? Your sin has been taken away, but your life still has a lot of problems. 
What are you supposed to do during this time of life? I've heard it described like this, that you are living uh, between the already and the not yet. So your sins have already been forgiven. Your adoption into God's family has already happened. Your inheritance in heaven has already been prepared. But you have not yet made it all the way home. You are not yet living a life that is free from suffering and pain. You are not yet all the way to the finish line. So what are you supposed to do in the meantime? Well, this is what the Bible is for. And like on a communion Sunday, this is what communion is for. It is for God to break into our world and make contact with us and remind us that we are so close. We're so close. We're almost there. And just knowing that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, can I make you raise your hands? Yeah, I will. Will you raise your hand if you enjoy running? Let's, let's pretend that you deeply enjoy running. Uh, in fact, let's pretend that you are a runner. This is your thing. And you like running so much, I want you to imagine that you enter into a running race. So you're running in this race, and for the first couple miles, you're feeling good. You've been training, you've been practicing, you're in shape, you're feeling good. But you get past the halfway point, you start getting towards those final miles, and you start getting really tired. You start to become so tired that your lungs are burning and your legs are shaking, and you're more like, you're not really running, you're kind of shuffling, right? And you almost think that you're going to have to stop. But it is in that moment that you almost think you're going to have to stop that you hear a sound from a little further down the, co down the course. And that sound is kind of a roar. It's the sound of the crowd at the finish line. And sure enough, you come around that corner and you can see the big finish line stretched out and you can hear the music and there's all these people that are dancing. They didn't want to run apparently, but they showed up so that they can dance and cheer for you. And they've got all the snacks and the Gatorade and the celebration beyond the finish line. And it is right there. And in your imagination, as you love running, you're really tired, you're right at the end of this race, all of a sudden what happens when you hear it and when you see it at the finish line is you get that boost of adrenaline. You have a little more energy, and you are equipped to keep running just a little bit longer because you are so close. And that's what God does for us when we come to church in this awkward in-between time between the already and the not yet. This is what God does for us every time we come to church, but especially during the Advent season. He points us to everything Jesus has done for us, and he points us to the fact he's coming again, and he tells us we are almost there. We are so close. We've been saved from our spiritual problems, and the day is coming when we will be rescued from everything else. And so, brothers and sisters, may God bless us as we keep going and finish the race and can continue to live our life in the reality of the salvation that Jesus has won for us. God grant that to each one of us. For the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.